I like to start my episodes with having people introduce themselves. So could you please introduce yourself? Sure thing. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me on your show. Uh, my name is Maurice Cherry. I am a designer. I'm a podcaster. I do many things. Uh, currently, I am on the team at Glitch working as a creative strategist. And I have a podcast myself called Revision Path, where I interview black designers and developers and digital creatives from all over the world. That's amazing. So I'm both a huge fan of Revision Path and Glitch. So I'm like really excited to have you on. <laughs> For people that don't know about Glitch, maybe you could talk just a little about it real quick. Absolutely. Uh, so Glitch is an in-browser tool that people can use to create pretty much anything they want out of JavaScript. Uh, JavaScript, I think, is kind of the main language that we support, and there are several flavors of that, Node, React, et cetera. Uh, but people have used Glitch to make all sorts of things from games to productivity tools to Slack integrations to Twitter bots. And the really neat thing about Glitch is that you don't have to start from scratch. You can start from scratch. We have a pretty robust editor that allows you to pair program with other people. Uh, we just rolled out a feature called Prettier, which will automatically format your code for you know, spacing and things of that nature. So it makes it look really nice. Uh, but the good thing is um, any glitch app that you see that you really like, you can remix it, which is sort of the, te the terminology that we use to uh, clone an app, for example. So you can start from something that already works, remix that, and then make it your own. You can customize it. You can work with other people and then publish it uh, for free. I love it. I love it. I love how accessible it makes uh, coding and programming and, and using terminology like Remix like yeah. helps that too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's used by um, a lot of dev teams at companies like Spotify. Uh, I know the Google Material team uses it. Uh, they use it at GitHub. Uh, but also a lot of educators use it. K through 12, college educators use it a lot in classes to teach concepts and to do projects and things of that nature. And if people want to check it out, what's the URL for it? Uh, it's glitch.com, G-L-I-T-C-H. Perfect. All right. Everyone go check it out. And um, and I was looking at your biography. You have a degree in mathematics. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, I have a math degree. That always tends to throw people a little bit. <laughs> so your path was like math and then creative director. And what else? Tell us a little bit about how, how you got where you are and, and what that was like navigating through different uh, sort of I wouldn't call them completely different disciplines, but uh, definitely your job titles changed from mathematics. Yeah, my path, much like the Beatles song, is a long and winding road. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, initially, I actually wanted to major in English um, all through uh, middle school and high school. I had a number of different interests that I was really passionate about, but writing was probably the biggest one. I was uh, published very early on, like in about first or second grade. I had stories I had written that had gotten published. I was published in high school as well. And so that was something that I really wanted to pursue, but my mom didn't really see it as a sort of lucrative venture. She wanted me to go into something that would basically make some money. And at the time, that was around computers. I was really interested in computers. My mom worked at a college. I had access to the computer lab there. We also had a supercomputer lab at our high school. So I taught myself HTML, you know, reverse engineer web pages. I was really into wanting to get into web design. 
And so I ended up going to Morehouse College, which is a private school uh, here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I currently live. And the only thing that was sort of related to it was computer science and computer engineering, which I had known about from a television show, actually, a television show on NBC in the 90s called A Different World. One of the primary characters, Dwayne Wayne, uh, was a computer scientist and he was an engineer and he worked for a uh, he worked for an engineering company called Konnichiwa. Uh and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get into computer science and learn how to you know make web pages. And I remember talking to my advisor in the dual degree program, and he was saying that the web was just a fad. Like nobody's no. gonna be doing this <laughs> in a few years. It's just a fad. You know, it's like you don't want to do that. He's like, and also we don't even do that here. Is I remember him explicitly saying that. They did more sort of hardcore program, you know, C++, assembly, things like that. And he said, if, you know, web design, if that's something you really want to go into, that you probably need to change your major. But there was no, I mean, to put this in context, this is 1999. So turn of the century, all of that. There were no web design courses at schools, at least not any that I knew of. And certainly it wasn't something that people were studying for a discipline to get a degree in. Everything was very new, the World Wide Web and the Internet, you know, f- still in the browser wars. Like this is still kind of a really sort of wild, wild west time when you think about the web back then, specifically as it relates to creation. And so the next thing that I thought to go into was math, uh, mostly for selfish reasons. Uh, one, I was captain of the mathletes when I was in high school. Nice. I was on our math club. I was like captain of our math club. Uh, but two... I had enough credits because I went to a summer program to actually start at the sophomore level of the uh, mathematics kind of degree program as a freshman. So I was able to start out with Cal three and go from there instead of having to take, you know, Cal one, Cal two, whatever, trigonometry, et cetera. So I was able to start early and I was like, Oh, so that means I could actually graduate early if I go in this program and I like math. So sure. Why not? I had no, thought or idea of what I was going to do when I graduated. It was not on my mind at all. All I was thinking was, oh, I can get out of here early and then live the rest of my life, I guess. I don't know after that. Uh, So did the math program. I actually did graduate early. And my first jobs out of school were all like customer service. Uh, To kind of put it in context, the the scholarship program that I was in in school was uh, with NASA. So we were able to intern at NASA facilities during the summer. And so the first summer I was out in Moffett Field, which is near Mountain View, where Google was uh, was created. So I was out there in Silicon Valley and, you know, kind of got to see the Web and the Internet from a different angle. And then the second summer I was at Marshall Space Flight Center, which is in uh, well, it's near Huntsville, Alabama. It's in a town called Normal, Alabama. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I kind of was in the vein of, I guess I'll just work for NASA when I graduate. Like, sure, Amazing. why not? I'm doing this. But then uh, 9-11 happened. And oh, so when yeah. 9-11 happened, uh, the scholarship program, they shifted the funding. It sort of went to Homeland Security. And then suddenly I had no job prospects after college. <laughs> and I was doing uh, I was doing a, a like a work study program for our computer science department. And it sort of snuck my name into their interview books because I worked there. Now I didn't have a computer science degree. Again, I was in math. And the only thing the math department was telling me was, Oh, you have two options when you graduate, 
go to graduate school or become a math teacher. And neither of those <laughs> right. were things I wanted to do. I was still working on the web. I was doing websites on the side. I did my scholarship programs, web page. I had clients. So I was still very interested in the web and was like, I'm not going to do it at, I'm not going to be a math teacher and a web designer. I don't even know how that would work, you know? And back then you really had like three options for working on the web, web designer, graphic designer, webmaster, which was like a combination of the two, you know? Right, right. Um, and so I was sneaking my name into the interview book. So I got to interview at Microsoft. I got to interview at Real Player, you know, at companies like that. Uh, none of them panned out. And so the job that I had on the side was selling tickets for the local symphony. And that's what I did <laughs> for about, oh, I'd say maybe six or seven months after I graduated. The, the one change that they made was that they took the calculator from my station because I had a math degree. And so they oh figured God. I didn't need it anymore. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Which, I mean, to be honest, was true. But. Come on. So, yeah. so I was doing customer service jobs. I did that. I did telemarketing for the opera for a while. Um, I was doing customer service work at Auto Trader for a hot minute. And then in the back of our local alt weekly here called Creative Loafing, there was a listing for an electronic media specialist for the state of Georgia. And I said, okay, I'll apply for that. Like, sure, why not? At this point, I had already built up, I think, a serviceable portfolio of work between 1999 and what year was this? This was 2005. So we're fast forwarding a bit here. So I had built up a pretty good portfolio of work. Um, apply for the job, got the job. It was my first like real full-time job, had an office. I was working at the Georgia World Congress Center, which is a uh, conference venue here in downtown Atlanta. And it's part of a larger sort of entertainment campus, I guess is the best way to put it, that consists of the Georgia World Congress Center, Centennial Olympic Park and the former Georgia Dome, which has now been demolished, but it was all one huge uh, entertainment complex uh, that was owned by the state. So I did that for about a year and a half and really cut my teeth on a lot of stuff. Like I already knew Photoshop and Illustrator because I taught that to myself off of pirated copies and and uh, <laughs> and course. going in and going into Barnes and Noble and looking at you know those you know those like computer arts magazines that are like 15 or 20 bucks like I would go there and like copy the uh, tutorials and then go home and try to recreate the work because I didn't have enough money to buy the magazines uh, same with the books you remember those books they would have like Photoshop tips and tricks books absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I couldn't afford any of that. So I'd just go in the Barnes and Noble that was near my apartment and just copy it and go home <laughs> and try to recreate it. So I knew Photoshop and Illustrator, but then that's when I also cut my teeth on Dreamweaver and Director because I was, I was still using Notepad at this point when I got that job to, to make web pages. Um, God, this sounds really old. <laughs> but, <laughs> no. um, but I cut my teeth on a lot of these technologies. I learned how to make CD-ROMs and interactive installations. And I even got to program the big giant roadside marquees and everything. Uh, oh, so I did a lot of stuff in that job that was really, I think that really kind of opened my eyes to how I could use design in different ways than just sitting on a computer. Uh, from there, I went to AT&T and I worked as a... Uh, worked as a web designer there, first as a junior designer, then I left. I worked at WebMD as a like web publisher, web services developer for a while, went back to AT&T, worked as a senior designer, and then quit my job in 2008 to start my own studio, 
uh, called Lunch, which I did for nine years. And I did everything there from mentoring to teaching to web design, graphic design, email marketing, podcasting, did a lot of stuff. And then in 2017, I joined the team at uh, what was then called Fog Creek Software. Um, And then in 2018, they changed their name to Glitch. And that's where I am now. Awesome. What a great, (laughs) what a great path. Thanks for sharing. I really, really appreciate you going into depth and and talking about to people about um, the nonlinearness of career paths, especially in, I think, our field, which I think dovetails really nicely into my next question of like, what advice do you have that are for people that are just getting into the design industry in general, but maybe since you work at Glitch and your specific, you know, experience, what advice do you have for aspiring webmasters, you know, people doing mm. web design or um, moving into that combination that we're seeing a lot of people that that do design work but are also coding? I think it's always important to remain flexible, but to also constantly check in with yourself. I think currently the design industry, and I'm I'm looking at this mostly, I think, from a product design standpoint, but Uh, It can be very easy to get swept up in the tools and the conversation and the personalities on design Twitter. And people can often use that to form a personality about themselves as a designer that does not involve any level of introspection on like, am I happy? Uh, What does success look like to me? You know, These are like important questions at the end of the day, because sometimes I I have met designers that are basically just trying to tick off working at certain companies just to say that they've done it, which I mean, yeah, that means something at the end of the day. But also as a digital designer, we also have to realize a lot of our work is fairly ephemeral. Like we can put so much effort and time into these digital creations and then in two years, they're obsolete. They're gone. They're overwritten by the next designer's you know, creation or what have you. So I think being able to constantly check in with yourself and be flexible as you go through your career is something that a lot of designers, uh, I just think need to put that in their back pocket. Like, especially when it comes to the definition of what success is. Um, I, I'm speaking of this, you know, mostly from like a black and tech angle, but I think it also just applies in general. Uh, there's a lot of, or there can be a lot of hero worship. Like, oh, I see what this person is doing. I want to be just like them. Or um, one thing that I know that I hear a lot of (laughs) just in the black and tech community is about teaching kids to be like the next Mark Zuckerberg. And I'm like, Mark Zuckerberg runs Facebook, which is like fomenting dissent in third world countries. And the platform itself is sowing the seeds of disinformation with political campaigns and stuff. Like, is that really what you want to be? Or do you just want to have money? Like check in with yourself and and really think about what does success look like for you? Cause it's different for different people and just emulating one person's success. I don't think is, is a, a healthy thing to do without sort of knowing how that checks in with your own value system. Uh, that is fantastic advice. That's a lot of people are looking at like, I want to be successful, but without defining the success part is like saying, I want to be a CEO of a company. Okay. What company? Oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, and it's also really what, like, what responsibilities come with that, you know? Oh, exactly. Yeah. Um, but Mark Zuckerberg is a great example of somebody that's like not being responsible for their actions and what they're doing with their money and their time and the, 
the sort of power that they wield. And I think it's something even he and other leaders in tech uh, at this point are starting to reckon with. You know, I mean, I I was around 20 years ago when all this stuff was, I mean, well, Facebook wasn't around 20 years ago, but when, you know, big tech was starting to become a capital T thing and there was a lot of promise that was held in the, you know, the tech industry and what it could provide and what it could do. And now I think we're seeing that the fruits of that are not always the the best thing. And we're having to reckon with like, oh, this is, we, we made this. So right. how do we fix it or how do we change it? Or what, do, you know, what do we do now? That um, That is great advice for somebody that's just starting out in the industry. But I also think that's great advice for people that are, have been in the industry for a long time. Do you have any additional advice for people that have been designing maybe as long as you have or have the sort of experience or seniority that you do? I mean, I think it's always good to have a project that is just your own thing. Um, I am, I'm loath to call it a side hustle because I'm not of the mind that every hobby that you have has to be monetized. But I think it's good to have some creative project that is just your own thing, that at the end of the day, this is what you can pour your energy into that is not governed by clients or coworkers or bosses or any other external factors. It's just you and your thing. It can be a public thing. It can be a private thing. Uh, I just think it's a good thing to have that because we can give so much of ourselves, you know, as I said before in this industry, to things which don't really have a long shelf life. And it's great to put them in a, a portfolio and to show it off. But, you know, I, at the end of the day, it kind of just ends up being like a, a photo album. <laughs> you know, like, like I talked to, to young designers that uh, want advice on, you know, how they can get a job and they'll show me their website. And it's all these, you know, pretty pictures of, you know, mock-ups they probably bought off of, I don't know, Creative Market <laughs> or something and just dropped in some logos. And I'm like, yeah, but does this exist? Like, or is this just pretty pictures? Like, can you talk about what your process was behind this. Can you tell me what the thoughts were that went into this? What were the problems? Who were the stakeholders? Like that's the sort of stuff that will, you know, feed you at the end of the day in terms of your work. But, you know, to the point that I mentioned earlier, it's good to have something that is just your own thing where you don't have to ask or answer those questions. It's just, it's yours. And that can be your retreat. That can be your sanctuary, whatever you, you know, choose to call it. I think it's just good to have that at the end of the day, because we give a lot and we put a lot into our work and the work doesn't necessarily live to tell the story. And is your thing revision path or do you have other projects as well? Oh, I have many things. <laughs> many Great. Things. I love that. Uh, revision path is one thing. Uh, I also just recently uh, co-published an anthology of design essays and commentary from indigenous people and people of color called Recognize. I did that in conjunction with Envision. So that's a new thing. Uh, but I also have several private projects that some people know about, some no one knows about that are just, they're just my things. And at the end of the day, that's what I can use to kind of compartmentalize my feelings about however work might be going or however a project might be going. I can realize that's its own thing. It's not necessarily my thing. 
I love that. If any of these projects have plans to come out into the world, I really am excited to see them because I saw Recognize and, and um, really encourage everybody else to look at it too. I'll put it in the show notes so people can click on it and and take a look because it's an amazing project. So thanks for thanks for doing that and putting it out there. Yeah, thank you. And thanks um, to the writers also that, that contributed to it. I mean, it's really their work uh, that, uh, that is being showcased. So thanks to them as well. So uh, the world at large, but I want to maybe talk specifically about our industry, has a, a lot of great things going for it, but also a lot of problems. There's sexism and racism and homophobia and transphobia and the patriarchy and the problems of capitalism. And we go on and on. Maybe let's umbrella term it as like hate and bigotry just for this conversation. I, I know I don't want to simplify it too much, but what are your thoughts on it? What what tips do you have for people to uh, resist and fight it? How can we look at it differently? And what else do you want to maybe share on the topic of like the hate in our, specifically in our industry? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> the hate in our industry. I, so, oh, wow. Where, where can I begin there? I mean, I'll start with, with race because I feel like that's probably the, the biggest thing that I can easily draw from. Uh, I feel like a lot of that, really a lot of these isms, or race, I think specifically comes from uh, the people in charge, not wanting to give up any of their seats of power. They want change, but they don't want to change. Um, and so because that happens, nothing really ends up happening. I, I just read this article in wired recently that was examining the past five years of the quote unquote diversity in tech initiative with, you know, big companies like Apple and Facebook and Google um, and how, Oh, in those five years, nothing's really changed. The numbers haven't really gone up or gone, you know, increased in any sort of significant fashion. I think part of that is because these are large companies. And even though a 1% increase looks small because it's the number one, that could also mean, a thousand people, you know, so it's, it's relative to the size of the company, but a lot of that really comes from, you know, just people not wanting to give up their power. They want to find diversity, but they are looking in the same places for it, that it may not exist. And to that end, what I think can end up happening is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of people looking to the future. So they'll fund initiatives for children and for teenagers but then there are people that are currently in the industry that also need help and are working through existing issues and traumas with companies and such that tend to sort of get overlooked, um, which I don't think is, a, is a, a very fair thing. I think it's easy to kind of look at the pipeline and look ahead and think, oh, well, I, if I can fix it in the future, then certainly it'll get fixed now in the present. And I mean, I think... I mean, we've all seen Back to the Future. That doesn't work. Like, like that's, not, that's, that's not a sustainable strategy for the future. That's, that's not a good thing. Uh, yeah, but it's just not wanting to give up that power. Certainly at, at companies that want to initiate diversity, what can end up happening is that the, the and I hate to say diverse people, but the people of color, you know, uh, people of different sexualities, different gender expressions, et cetera, tend to get tasked with being the ones that are the, kind of the the face of diversity they have to be the ones to go out and recruit other people and things like that and it's an unfair job that's not what they're that's not what why they've been employed at a company 
is to be that sort of spokesperson for diversity. It really has to come from the top. It's got to come from the C-suite. They have to be the ones to put that in play. And I think also, and this is something that I also sort of, you know, kind of gained from from the Wired article, is that there's not really any uh, punishment, I guess, is kind of the best way to put it. So like if these initiatives don't work, everyone's like, oh, well, we tried. Like, no one's losing their job over this if they don't happen to meet certain quotas. There's no risk. I mean, not risk. There's no sort of, yeah, there's no risk tied to it. Like, if it doesn't work, oh, well, we still have a company that's still making, you know, widgets or whatever. So we'll just keep making widgets and we'll keep trying to shoot for diversity, even though we're, you know, doing it with our eyes closed and not aiming at the target. We'll still try. Uh, But, yeah, giving up that, that power, I think, is really important. And I'm not saying that someone has to like completely step down, but even just ceding part of that to, uh, to people to allow them to make their own decisions is good. Um, I just recently interviewed someone for the podcast and and their interview will come out, um, in December. Um, but it's a really good interview. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about it, but, uh, they were talking about how basically what ended up happening at their company is that the people at the top in the C-suite kind of ceded some of their, their power in terms of decision-making over to their employee ERGs as it relates to recruiting and uh, events and things like that. And so they now have agency to do these things because it's come from the top. It's not something that's necessarily employee-led, but it's also C-suite supported. So they've been able to say, okay, we're going to give you all this budget and we're giving you the authority to do this. So go forth and do it. And I think that's the sort of thing we need to see more of kind of from this industry. And I mean, that relates to not just race. I think it relates, there are, there are different struggles, I think, in different communities. And I certainly can't, you know, can't and don't want to speak for all of them, but certainly just the notion of giving up and ceding some of that power, I think is relative to all of them. Right. Yeah. And that works beyond just like design beyond just the tech industry. I think it's, uh, some of these problems are pretty widespread as, as you know, and I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. And like, just don't, like, and like, and like, don't argue about stuff on Twitter. I see so much. I try to, <laughs> yeah. I try to elect out of, of design Twitter. I, I sort of pop into my Twitter every now and then. Um, Cause <laughs> it's not the best platform for discussion. I don't care how many threaded features or character expansion counts they do. It's just not a good place to, to have meaningful discussions. It's, it's just not. Sorry, Twitter. It's not. It's not a good place for discussion. Um, and there can be a lot of insidious thoughts that sort of bubble up. And, you know, there can be a number of personalities that I think get off on that level of kind of terrible behavior because it can be like an automatic dopamine rush when people are retweeting your vile thing or liking your stupid comment or whatever. Yeah. Like, I think just not feeding Twitter is probably a good idea. Sorry yeah. to Twitter, but yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> when designers that are people that are just joining the design industry ask me what design Twitter is, I tell them not to go looking for it. <laughs> yeah, like don't don't do that. I I think it's good to get in it's good to get inspired by creativity and not necessarily by just certain personalities. Like I think if there's people that you like, that's one thing. You can certainly emulate the work, but yeah, oftentimes design Twitter is is more trouble than it can be worth. I try to try to stay out of that. Smart. Who is one person that the listeners should know about? 
That is a big question because I know a lot of people <laughs> that I think could fit that bill. I, I would say off the top of my head, and that's only because I've – well, not only because I've had her on my show for uh, a number of years, but uh, she's also a friend of mine. Her name is Sarah Honey Young. Uh, she currently lives in Pittsburgh. She's a creative director, photographer, event producer, DJ. She is also someone who has been around on the web for a really long time uh, when a lot of black women designers look to inspiration, like they look to the past, they, it kind of originates with her. Uh, she's had the privilege of doing work with Vibe. I think she did Mariah Carey's website. Like she's done a lot of really great work. Her, uh, her design eye is, is just ridiculous. Like, I want to stop designing when I look at the work that she's done because of the level of just care and precision and, and emotion that goes into it. I know, I, I feel like she's kind of transitioned a little bit out of design and I don't want to speak for her on that respect, but she is someone who I think uh, certainly needs to be getting the same level of attention and press as say like Zeldman. Yeah, like uh, there's a lot of people in the in the design industry, people of color that I think have been doing great work for decades and just haven't got their shine. But she's someone I think, especially because of how many people she's inspired, and and you know how many people still look to her for inspiration, is someone that uh, I think more people should know about. And it's Honey H U N Y, not Honey like the the food. Thanks for recognizing Sarah on this podcast and with this audience. I will put links to her work and to follow her in the show notes as well. I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So on this show, we share the profits from advertisements, future sponsorship when we get it, um, donations on our website, bezier.show, and uh, any other funds that this podcast uh, raises uh, with our guests. So you'll, you'll get a portion of it split with all the other guests on the show. Um, outside of that, are there other ways that our listeners can support you? Well, I'm not, well, I'm not really freelancing at the moment. I'm kind of devoting a lot of my time to glitch, um, as well as to, you know, some of the projects that I, some of the projects I mentioned before, and then also just some of the personal projects that I'm doing that are not visible. I mean, if people want to support there's, you can PayPal me, uh, Maurice at mauricecherry.com is my email address. Um, and I mean, and funds for that go towards recognize, they don't go towards revision path because we do have sponsors for that, but I, I do take that and put that into my other projects that are not tied to revision path. Um, are there other ways people can support really just share the work? Honestly, that's the best thing people can do to support me. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that because I'm because of, you know, what I get paid at Glitch, but it really helps to just get the word out about the work because the people that I'm work that I'm really hoping to profile, that visibility is so important to them as well. So it's not really about me, like just support the work. So if you see Revision Pass somewhere, tell people about it, uh, listen to the podcast, download it. That's what really helps me out. The more reach that the show can get, uh, the better, because it's an old show. <laughs> It's been a, it'll be seven years old in February. So it's been around for wow. a minute. Uh, Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Like tell people about it, get it out there. Like let people hear it. You know, uh, that's what really can help me out. Perfect. And so we've got revision path. We've got recognize glitch.com. 
Uh, do you want people to know your website, any uh, social media networks that you prefer people follow you on or where else can people find you? Yeah, sure. So my website is uh, marischerry.com. That's just my first name, my last name. I'm on Twitter at marischerry. And you can also follow me on Tumblr, which is, I know Tumblr is kind of the thing that people had abandoned for a minute, but I I sort of call Tumblr my personal blog, although I don't really post a ton of stuff on there. I mostly use it for inspiration and I'll, you know, post up news about Revision Path and stuff like that. But that's blog.marischerry.com. Uh, yeah, those are the, the best ways to follow me. Fantastic. I love a good Tumblr plug. Um, <laughs> I'll put those all in the show notes. Maurice, thank you so much for being on Bezier show. Is there anything else that you want to share with the audience? Any other questions that you have or any words of advice for anybody listening? I guess I'll just try to leave people with, with one last thing. You know, I, I recently left a design conference. Uh, it takes place at Harvard every other year. It's called Black in Design. And so the f- goal this year was about, of the conference this year, was about creating a more equitable future. Uh, when we think about times in pop culture that really are, I think, embedded in folks' minds, particularly here in the U.S., we think of like 1984, we think of 1999, we think of 2020, probably because of the new show also. But um, I think I just want to leave people with the notion of how do you use your talents for the future? Like there are a number of different issues out there. There's climate change mass migration. I mean, we're faced with a lot of challenges that are really going to push our creativity to the brink. And I think it's important for us to think about how we can use our talents to improve the world around us and not just to improve a brand or a company or a website. Like how can your, how can the work that you do help to create joy in the world? How can it give equity to other people? How can you design for what's possible? Like think of that as you sort of navigate through the world. And as we move into, you know, a new decade, it'll be 2020 soon. Isn't that wild? That's wild. It is. I didn't even think about that. (laughs) It's wild to think about. So like designers have the, the innate ability to analyze and deconstruct and reconstruct. And those are all things that I think are more important now in this world than ever before. So just think about how you use your talents to create a more equitable future. That is the best way to end the show. Thank you so much. Zach, thank you so much for having me.